This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. I wish more people would wake up in the morning being excited about what they're going to be doing the rest of the day. There was a baseball player by the name of Satchel Page that years ago, years and years ago said, he said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you was? I mean, you know, that's about exactly. it. I don't feel 82. I mean, in my head, I, if someone, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I feel about 53. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and this is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, I'm delighted to be with Herb Albert for this episode. I've come to Herb's studio here in Malibu in California. Herb Albert, of course, one of the legends of the music business from the Tijuana Brass to running his own record label, discovering the Carpenters to forming his own music foundation, nurturing the talent of young artists today. Herb, it's great to see you. And good morning. And good morning. It's great <laughs> to see you. That was a bit of Spanish flea, wasn't it? Uh, that was a little Spanish flea, yeah. That was written by Julius Wechter, and uh, it's one of the staple dishes. <laughs> <laughs> what a unmistakable bit of music as well. Well, you know, this is how I got started, because I, when I was eight years old, I had this incredible experience in my uh, grammar school here in Los Angeles, and there was a music appreciation class. And uh, when I picked up the trumpet and the trumpet started talking, for me, I was very shy. I was an introvert. I still am an introvert, but that trumpet was making uh, the noise that I couldn't make out of my mouth. So it's been a great friend for me. I stay with it and practice it just about every day of my life because it's, it's, it's a fun pursuit. You never really get to where you want to get to as a musician. You, might, you know, my friend... Uh, Dizzy Gillespie used to say, the, the closer I get, the farther it looks. <laughs> so I'm continually practicing and having a great time doing it. And you say you were a, an introverted child, that you played the instrument and, and music kind of brought you out of yourself a little bit? I don't know, but at that particular time in my life, when 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, it was just, it was communicating for me. You know, I didn't have a lot to say. I wasn't... Uh, really very verbal. So the trumpet was uh, doing what uh, I couldn't do, and it all seemed to work out. When did you realize that you had a, a real talent for playing an instrument? When did you realize that you, you had a special ability? Well, it took, it took a while. You know, I studied with some great musicians, and this one Russian teacher that I had, I was playing this etude, and uh, after I finished it, he, I, I looked at him, and he, there was tears rolling down his face. And I said, he said, that was just beautiful. That was beautiful, so beautiful, <laughs> you know. And from that point on, I felt like, hmm, maybe I do have something. But I was, you know, I was in the classical world at that time. And, and then I got corrupted with, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis and jazz and I decided, you know, I just wanted to close my eyes and play. I just wanted to make the music that was coming naturally out of me. And jazz, uh, I gravitated towards jazz. And then with the Tijuana Brass, I kind of crossed 
it was a hybrid to me. It was like a cross between jazz and, and pop. So I, I felt like I was on my own trail there. Now, this is a, a podcast about human longevity. So we talk about longevity in all of its forms, from health and wellness to career longevity, relationship longevity. You are now 82 years old. Do you think about your own lifespan, your own health span in terms of longevity? Is it something that you ponder on? Only when my back goes out. <laughs> no, I really don't think about it. You know, I'm, I'm really blessed. I get to do what I love, love to do. I love to paint. I love to sculpt. I love to make music. And, uh, yeah, I'm an, uh, 85% in the right side of my brain. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I wake up in the morning thinking about things I'd like to do that day. And it usually has to do with something creative. That's why, you know, it, I started the Herb Alpert Foundation to... See if I can bring that same type of energy into the uh, public school system and private school system. We've, we've cut a lot of these programs out, and I think it's a, crucially important for kids to have that experience at an early age. Do you get a lot out of just simply being with young people, young, enthusiastic people who want to, to make something of their lives? Well, it takes a while for a kid to really get started. You know, you gotta you got to start the engine, and then they, they find their passion that you can't really talk anyone into their passion but you know it's, when you start learning to play an instrument or you're an actor or a dancer or you're, you're a poet it, you have to f kind of find your own fl flag yourself down to the runway and then you get your passion going I, I try to I think teaching is all about inspiration if you can inspire somebody to do something and then it's up to them, you know. But the inspiration is that first uh, thing that ignites uh, passion. Where did your initial passion and inspiration come from? You talked about, I suppose, picking up an instrument for the first time and, and realizing that you had something. But was there someone or, or something that, that fired that enthusiasm in you? Well, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time learning how to play the trumpet. And uh, there was a moment when um, I was playing with a little group and... Somebody came up to me and says, man, I really like the way you play. It touches me. You know, I think, I think it started there. And, of course, I've had some wonderful experiences of working with the great Sam Cooke years back. And Sam was a mentor to me. He didn't know it, but, he, you know, he taught me a lot about just it's all about feeling. It's not about the intellect. It's not about technical ability. It's all about how, how does it feel? You know, and I've always uh, pursued that aspect of it. When I think about the the musicians that I like and the records that I like, I think it's all it breaks down to uh, does it touch you or it doesn't touch you. And I, I you can't talk anyone into a record. You know, when I was at A and M Records, the A of A and M Records, and I remember listening to a a song that an artist, a ma it was actually a master that. It, uh, the artist came into my office with, and I was so excited about it, and I thought, man, well, that this could be a big hit record, you know? So I, I remember going into the, the promotion department and playing it for them, and the three people that were in that department, they were kind of like staring out the window as I, was, as I was playing this thing. I mean, they didn't get it, you know? Or they didn't get Rise, as a matter of fact. When I recorded that in 1979, they didn't, um, it didn't, it didn't connect for some reason until, you know, radio started responding and some disc jockeys uh, really loved it. And so it started climbing up the charts. And 
all of a sudden, you know, it became a big hit and everyone, you know, obviously turned around. And the same thing happened with the Carpenters. You know, I signed the Carpenters in 1970. First couple of records were like, mm, not so-so. And a lot of the people in my own company were saying, eh, these, I was hearing the rumble of these kids are a little too cute, a little too sweet, that doesn't really fit into radio. And then I gave them close to you. And, you know, the tide turned. So uh, nobody really knows. The, the public knows what they like. And for me, asking me personally, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a real personal decision on the likes and dislikes of uh, art. I, to me, art is such a mystery. You know, what is that thing that makes you really buzz to when you, when you hear something or when you see a sculpture? I remember seeing uh, uh, the sculpture of David in um, in Florence several years ago, and I was tearing up. You know, I was just, wow, there it is. That sculpture is fantastic. And then as I reflected on it, I was thinking, what if I was there when Michelangelo hmm. was creating this thing? And, and he said, Herb, give me the truth. What do you think? How am I doing? Do you love this or like it? And I was... I wanted to be really honest with them, and I, I, I would have said, I think the hands are too big, <laughs> and, the, and the feet are too big. You know, so I would have, I would have ruined it if he yeah. took my advice. Yeah. So it's, it's all individual. It's interesting, you as a, as a young man, when you were learning the instrument, that you had someone to, to nurture your talent, to, to tell you, in effect, that you were good at what you were doing, and presumably enthuse you and encourage you to, to keep on going. I suppose that's what you did uh, as, a, as a music manager, as a, a record label impresario. You know, you met Karen Carpenter and you, or you heard her music for the first time on tape and you realized that she had something special. Well, I realized that they had something special. It wasn't just Karen. Karen was right. beautiful. She had a wonderful God-given talent, but it was the two of them. It was Richard and Karen because when I met them, Karen was playing drums, and she was singing. Uh, you know, she didn't like to get out behind that drum set until uh, you know after they had several hit records. That's what she thought she did best, I think, isn't it? At one stage. Well, yeah, yeah. If you if you would ask her, you know, what's your strength? She says, "Well, I'm a really a good drummer." <laughs> you know? She didn't know how great she was. I mean, she didn't know that she touched so many people in so many profound ways. And of course, she, I mean, very sadly, she is one of those people who is kind of frozen in time, isn't she? From that great voice that she had at a young age, and then no more. And I suppose we can only be left to wonder what might have been, what greatness she might have gone on to, how she could have sounded today. Well, that's true, but that's not the sad part. The sad part for me is that she never really realized how great she was right. and how many people she touched in a positive way. She was um, a kid that was not quite mature yet. You know, she, she was very innocent. She was a lovely girl, and it's a, just the saddest thing to think that, uh, you know, she bounced into my office two weeks before she passed away, and she was all excited. She was, wanted to do concerts again and wanted to record again, and she had just come back from the stint in the hospital. And uh, two weeks later, she was gone. So it, it, it's a really sad story. I will always have great memories of her. Well, it is a, a great, as far as your career is concerned, uh, that period was a, a very rich time, wasn't it, to be involved with artists like the Carpenters. You can't plan for that. You can't create that. It, it kind of just happens, doesn't it? 
Well, it does happen, but you gotta, you know, you have to keep your antennas up. You know, I, I remember Sam Cooke, you know, uh, auditioning an artist, and he taught me a lot. You know, he, this artist he wanted to sign for his own label, and uh, I thought he was great. The guy was really good looking. He had a nice way about him. He had, you know, striking green eyes, <laughs> and. Sam asked me what I thought, and I said, man, I think he's great. Sign. I think you should sign him. He says, well, turn your back on him and listen to him for five minutes, which I did, and uh, I didn't receive the message. You know, I, after five minutes, my back turned to him. I didn't get it. And he said, that's the deal, man. He says, people don't care if you're black or white or what kind of echo chamber you're using. They're just listening to a cold piece of wax, and it either makes it or it don't. So I've always used that, that technique at A&M. I, auditioning groups I would always close my eyes and just listen see if I was being touched and it, it, it seemed to work I did that with the Carpenters when I heard that tape and it sounded like Karen's voice was sitting in right next to me on on the couch and I was curious to meet them it wasn't the type of music that I normally listened to but I responded to the honesty of what they were doing it was authentic and I made a point of whenever a group would uh, uh, audition at A&M, I never wanted to uh, discourage anyone. So I, at times I would just have to say, look at man, just because I ain't getting your message, I ain't receiving your thing, it doesn't mean you ain't sending anything. Keep it going, but uh, I, I don't get it. Now, of course, before the Carpenters, before A&M, Tijuana Brass, you were at a bullfight and, and that's where the inspiration came. Yeah, that was the inspiration for wanting to do this Lonely Bull record. I never listened to mariachi music, but there was this brass band in the stands in Tijuana, and uh, they just would, would introduce the uh, different events at the bullfight, uh, like the bull comes out, you know, and then they had another fanfare for the matador and the picadors, and it was... Uh, you know, something that uh, kind of got under my skin after, you know, watching this uh, for three years. I used to go in the, in the springtime. And so I wanted to translate that feeling, if I could, onto a, a record. And that's how The Lonely Bull came, came about. And then I had a disc jockey friend in Los Angeles who listened to the original first recording that I did of it. That was... Um, it was good, but he said, where's the hook? I said, what do you mean the hook? I don't, this is not an, a, a vocal. This is an instrumental. He says, man, you need a hook on this record. So I thought about that idea, the hook. What is the hook? So I called an uh, engineer friend at, at Liberty Records, Ted Keeps, who ha- happened to have a tape of 30,000 people screaming Olay at a bullfight. And so I used that right in the front as I played the fanfare but this Olay sound and band, that was the hook. That was like the chill bump moment. And so that record became a big hit. And when I got this letter from a lady in Germany, when, when the record was top 10 in, uh, on the charts, and she said, thank you for sending me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana. I chuckled, and then I thought, well, man, that record, it took her to another place and you know obviously she was in Germany and Tijuana was pretty far away but I thought from that point on, I'm going to make records that try to make records that really you know take you someplace and this has been my pursuit. 
Well, it has been your pursuit because you're still doing that today. You're still creating new music. You're still touring as well. How do you find the touring? Is it is it quite grueling? No, I love it. Actually, I love playing. I uh, love uh, working with my wife. We have a, a very simple group behind us, drums, bass, and uh, keyboards. We have the same guys for the last 11 and a half years, and we have a good time. They all have a good sense of humor, and they're personal friends of ours. And we have been playing to standing ovations from the start. I mean, people are loving what we're doing, and I feel a, somewhat of a responsibility, not an obligation, but uh, I think we're going through some really rough times now, and if, if my music can make people happy and, and make them feel better uh, after the concert, I, I think that's something I need to do, and I'm going to do it as long as I'm able to. You, when you say rough times, you mean the state of the world, the state of America? Yeah, I think there's some really negative energy out there right now, and so I, I like to, I like to make positive music. I mean, that's that's what I've always tried to do, make music that makes me feel good. I feel like if I can play something that makes me feel good, it's gonna hopefully make someone else feel pretty good too. I wonder, with the the passing of years, does your attitude towards your music change in the sense that you are? I suppose, reflecting the world around you? Does your passion sort of ebb and flow according to how you feel about things? Yeah, quite possibly. But I think what's happening now, which is kind of beautiful in one sense, because, you know, we're dealing with zeros and ones, and that's how we're making music these days. And uh, we're borrowing from different parts of the world because of, you know, the uh, uh, YouTube and Spotify's and all those other little gadgets that we can tap into and we're hearing music from different parts of the world and that music is kind of like it's morphing it's getting it's it's there's like music is kind of a hybrid now you know you're hearing jazz coupled with hip-hop and this that and with a little bit of african and some turkish you know reggae i you know i don't know it's just it's it's a little exciting at the moment in terms of what's possible then now having said that i mean it's 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 a little more mechanical than it used to be. We used to just go in the studio with musicians and record. Boom, that was it. You'd have the musicians there, and they'd roll some tape, and then that would uh, be the session. You could maybe do two or three songs in a session. And now you can do that very same thing. Uh, I mean, I recorded an, an album called We Rewhipped with musicians I never met. They sent me uh, music files from different parts of the country, and these files, I, I put my trumpet on, send the files back to them, just the trumpet file, because it's all time-coded, and they put it into their master recording. And um, the point is, uh, they could have been in Afghanistan. It didn't, it didn't really matter. I just sent them the file, they mixed it, and it came out great. I mean, the whole album is terrific, but I never met these young mixers that were doing wonderful things for me <laughs> well we're sitting in your studio now and i i see obviously there are traditional instruments around here but you have your computers and you have your technology as well do you enjoy learning the technology and getting to grips with how it works because it, it can be quite challenging can't it yeah it's fun it's it's a challenge for sure because you know like i'm 82 and i like to keep my brain active so some of the things that i have to learn i mean i got to really concentrate and make sure that it's uh, i'm doing it the right way or else i'll lose lo you can lose it very easily so it's challenging and and fun at the same time but i like the process of recording there's something about it that really turns me on it's like how can i take songs that are sometimes familiar to people 
like standard songs, and do them in a way that they haven't been done quite that way before, that's a great challenge for me. Where I, I pick up the horn and I, I play Taste of Honey 14 different ways, you know, and, and it came to me, hmm, I, I think I hit on the way to really do it, you know. So uh, I like that whole process. My friend Stan Getz used to say, I said, man, what's it like playing? I mean, he was one of the great, great jazz musicians. And I said, what's it like? He says, well, it's like I'm sitting in the back seat of a Ferrari and there's, the musicians are in front, the drummer and the bass player and the piano player. And I'm listening to them and I'm just playing along with them. I said, come on, man, what does it really feel like when you're playing? He said something that was so beautiful. <laughs> to this day, it, 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 it's a chuckle. He said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm playing something slow. I feel like I'm in front of the wailing wall in Jerusalem, and I'm davening. He's praying through the horn. <laughs> and you said you, you enjoy the, the challenge, the process of, of the technology and learning new ways to do things. Do you think, as you, as you age, that that kind of mental agility is a big part of, of healthy and purposeful aging, that it does, in part, keep you going? Absolutely, no doubt about it. I, I wish more people would wake up in the morning being excited about what they're going to be doing the rest of the day. And, you know, I know a lot of people are stuck in some work that they, they need to do. They need to provide for their family. And it's a, it's a, it's a touchy situation because, I mean, we're all looking for the same thing. We're all looking for a meaningful life with purpose. And some people come from a, a, a situation and a background that's... that's uh, pretty sad and it's it's not it kind of drains them of their hope so to get to meaningful place is is a lot tougher so i'd love to see the playing field a little little more even and you know i I honestly feel we all have the same ticket to this thing called life you know and and there's no one that has a different ticket and i think we should learn to treat each other with respect and that's why i love uh, young musicians and, and teaching kids at an early age to uh, respond to their artistic uh, endeavors. And I think if they do that, they, there's a chance that they might uh, appreciate their own uniqueness. And if they can appreciate their own uniqueness, fingers crossed, they might be able to appreciate the uniqueness in others. And I think we need a lot more of that. I mentioned age, but really age should be no barrier, should it? Well, hey... There was a baseball player by the name of Satchel Page that years ago, years and years ago, said, he said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you was? I mean, you know, that's about <laughs> exactly. it. I don't feel 82. I mean, I, in my head, I, if someone, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I feel about 53. My back feels 82 at the moment. <laughs> but, but you can fix that, hopefully. Oh, yeah, it's going to be okay, but it's, it, it caught me off guard. But it's easier to say age is a number, but it depends. If you're healthy, you know, it's a different world than if uh, you've got some serious problems. So uh, I'm certainly aware of that. How do you look after yourself? Do you work out? I mean, obviously playing an instrument is a, a workout in itself, but uh, do you do other forms of exercise? Yeah, I try to stretch and, uh, you know, playing the horn every day and I paint and I sculpt and I do all those things that uh, give me, uh, make me feel good. So I don't have any, like, strict routine, but I like to try to eat healthy. My wife is uh, very conscious of of what we uh, put on the table and things we shouldn't eat and things we shouldn't do and... 
try to uh, put a, a limit on the amount of sugar I take in. <laughs> I don't know. I try. I try to be work healthy. You know, you you, you got to be lucky though. Your genetics plays, I think, such an important part in one's health. And you hear all these stories. I mean, I when I was in high school, I was working at a gym, and this guy. His name was Harvey Easton. He was a bodybuilder. He, he was an award-winning bodybuilder. He was a fanatic with organic, bringing his bag to the gym every day and having lunch out with, you know, seaweeds and all sorts of things that were, seemed like really good for him. And it was his gym. And uh, he had a heart attack when he was 37 years old hmm. and passed away. So, I mean... I didn't want to get negative from that, but I mean, why? Well, he was doing everything right, and it didn't, it didn't seem to work out. Which is a good reason just to live for today, isn't it? Well, you got to live for today, but I think you got to be smart and got to be lucky. You know, I, I think luck plays such an enormous part of one's success. Whether you're, uh, you know, making shoelaces or uh, a musician or poet or painter uh you got to be at the right place at the right time and if you're uh prepared when the door opens for you uh you got a good chance of walking through it but if we tried to start a&m records in today's uh, environment it, it wouldn't have happened that's for sure and so a&m wouldn't have happened and we wouldn't be talking right now probably <laughs> why wouldn't it have happened today well it's just a different environment you know it's uh when we started in 1962 there were little companies uh, operating out of the trunks of their car, and we had uh, this this one record. We weren't start thinking about starting a, a record industry. We just wanted to put out one record, and this record started happening, and most of our distributors that we got, they said, why don't you just take the money and run? Get out of here. You got lucky. And so that kind of spurred us on. We wanted to see if we could hang on little longer so we did the lonely bull album and that happened when we reinvested the money and into the company and little by little you know there was just the two of us starting in my garage then three and five and 20 and 40 and 90 and 100 and 300 and 500 and all of a sudden it got way out of hand you know and we sold in 1990 and uh, I never looked back you know I thought it was the right time I wasn't a complete visionary, but I did su suspect something was going to go on with the zeros and ones. It was a little too easy to move music around. So uh, we got out just at the right time, and I moved on. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I love to do, and I'm a lucky guy. And you mentioned your wife earlier. You've had a long, happy relationship with Lonnie. How big a role do you think that, that aspect of your life plays in keeping going and good longevity? I think it's a huge part of, of the, what I feel. She's she's in a, she's like an angel. She she changed my life. I was uh, not sputtering, but I was I was having problems. You know, I had problems in 1969 and 70, 71. I I couldn't play the trumpet. I was having uh, all sorts of difficulties. I was going through a divorce, and I was stuttering through the horn. I couldn't get that f f first note out right. You know, it wouldn't wouldn't happen. And so and that took a while for me to work that out. Uh, and I studied with a, a trumpet teacher in New York who uh, was called the troubleshooter. And he used to teach musicians from around the world. 
And uh, he looked at my trumpet. I said, man, you think I should, I said, do you think I should get another mouthpiece or a different trumpet? Or blah? He says, look, man, this, this, this trumpet of yours, it's just a piece of plumbing. <laughs> he called it a piece of plumbing. <laughs> he says, you're the instrument. You're the instrument. And, uh, you know, from that point on, you know, things started to fall in place. And then I met Lon, uh, Lonnie and I, our, our relationship really blossomed and we got married and I just feel really lucky to uh, have Lonnie in my life. She's a world-class singer, and, and she's uh, an angel. And you've worked together, I know, a lot on your foundation. And, and it's, it, this is a huge venture for you. And you've provided a lot of funds for a lot of young people and inspired a lot of careers, creative artistry in terms of, of music and, and other arts as well. What does that give back to you? And what enthuses you about it hmm. I, li- I like the feeling of giving back I like the feeling of helping others if I can it started in, in the early 80s and one of my um, goals was look at if I can do it you can do it too look at I'll show you how to do it you know and then I, I, I made a decision I said look at we're not the Ford Foundation we're not uh, you know Rockefeller here we have a certain amount of funds I want to see if I can you know do it in a really smart way. So we're we're very pigeonholed on what we do with the foundation, and it mainly goes for education and kids and the arts, trying to keep jazz alive. Jazz is the most beautiful art form, original art form, and uh, that we have here in in the United States. And I just try to do things that make sense. I I, I kind of work from the seat of my pants. I don't have like a master plan other than uh, we're not giving to you know the red cross or the major organizations that have a lot of funding and i want to see if i can help kids uh have that same type of experience that i had when i was 8 years old and experience their uniqueness and whether they want to paint sculpt write music become an actor it doesn't matter as long as they can get that spontaneity out and appreciate themselves like I said before then they can appreciate others hopefully and looking to the future do you have personal aspirations musical aspirations for yourself still I just want to you know get up to my own water level I like I like the pursuit I like every day I think about well like what can I work on on the horn that I I haven't been able to do and I think the hardest part is to just totally be yourself and not care whether somebody listening to it thinks it's wonderful or not it's not important i i see i loved miles davis miles had the uh he had the attitude of uh, if you don't like it you know take a walk i don't care he didn't care he, he was just doing his thing the way he felt it it's it's not that easy to get to you know as a musician you want to you're playing for a lot of people and you're doing concerts you you, you want to do something that's going to be satisfying for everyone and and how do you get to that place and be totally, totally honest with what comes out of that horn? And that's what I try to do. I try to make it spontaneous. I try to make it authentic and, and, and real for me. And I'm pretty much doing that. So it, it's, it's a satisfying feeling. And life is good. We're here in your home in Malibu, in your studio. This is, I, mean, I can imagine why this alone would give you a lift, a beautiful part of, of California. There is a kind of uh, zen-like feeling about this place, isn't there? Well, there is a really zen-like feeling because this, this whole property in this whole area belonged to the Chumash Indians 
and where we're sitting right here, this was a sacred ground for them. And I try to preserve it in their, it's, it's their place. You know, I, when I bought this in 1972, I said, I'm going to do this and hope they're, they're going to be proud of what I'm doing with the, their land. Well, Herb Albert, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Is there any chance of you playing us out, maybe a little medley? Well, I got this mute on, you know, so I don't uh, rattle the neighbors. It's been great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for this special episode of Live Long and Master Aging. Our website is llamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can find show notes there. I'll include a link to the Herb Albert Foundation where you can find out much more about the work that Herb is doing. Many thanks for listening. Flexbeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the Flexbeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. Flexbeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.